you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we've been talking about eternal life. Today we want to make a transition into talking about the resurrection itself. And let me read down a few verses here. Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace, it was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul is addressing a problem that's in this church in Corinth. Corinth, part of... Uh, the Greek nations and influenced greatly by the philosophies of the Greek people. And in that philosophy, to a great extent, the, the way of looking at a person living was that they had a soul, and the soul was eternal, and the soul was imprisoned in a body and that the body was something that one should uh, not over-esteem because the body was a trap. It led into all kinds of mischief and uh, caused people great limitations, pains, and sorrows. And so the soul in the Greek philosophy was seen as that which had value 
and the body itself was something that was held in disdain. So when Paul preached there at Mars Hill, uh, the people were there speaking about this babbler. That's what they spoke of Paul, that he was a babbler. And he had some new thing that he was talking about, which was the resurrection of the dead. And so this type of thinking now has, again, surfaced in this church in Corinth. Now, we should be glad that the problems surface there. A lot of times when problems come into the church, the people in the church kind of go, yikes, our church has got a problem, that's not good. What will the world think of the church if we have problems? Well, um, I think most of us would say of the churches wherever we're a member in the community that our churches have problems. This church had a problem. The problem this church had, faced squarely by Paul, addressed according to the scripture, uh, became a great benefit to all Christians right down to today because we use the outline of Paul's thinking here to help us to understand the nature of the bodily resurrection. Now we're talking about just briefly the, the Greek philosophers and their disdain of the body. Well, we as Christians understand not the disdain of the body, but the weakness of the body. I want to read a piece that I picked up this week uh, about a Christian who'd gotten old in their body. It's the story of supposedly, now this is attributed to a conversation with John Quincy Adams. So John Quincy Adams is in his 80s. He's walking along a street in Boston. And a man comes up and says, and how is John Quincy Adams today? The former president of the United States replied graciously, thank you, John Quincy Adams is well, sir quite well, I thank you, but the house in which he lives at present is becoming dilapidated. It is tottering upon the foundations. Time and the seasons have nearly destroyed it. Its roof is pretty well worn out, its walls are shattered, and it trembles with every wind. The old tenement is becoming almost uninhabitable and I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it soon. But he himself is quite well, sir, quite well. Now that's the way I think that we should think. The body grows old. Things perish. They need to be changed. Christ's message to us is he has been raised from the dead. And that is to give us hope of our future Resurrection. Now, there's another great passage that deals with this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, in which Paul talks about those who have been raised from the dead, and or to be raised from the dead, and he says at the end of that passage that we are to comfort one another with this doctrine. Constantly we're dealing with people in our lives who are Christians, who are lo losing loved ones, some very young, some quite old. And what's the truth 
about this loss because for us it's a loss. Paul says for the person that goes to be with Christ that it is a gain. We see loss. They see gain. We want to be comforted with the truth of the scriptures. Now Paul's goal here in this passage is to demonstrate from the fact of Jesus' resurrection. That's where he's beginning, that that's indisputable. And that this fact is gives us the certainty of God's raising up of the bodies of believers at the end of the age. Shorthand, because Christ arose, believers also shall arise. His resurrection is seen in the scriptures repeatedly as a pledge and as a guarantee of our own resurrection. So that's what Paul's about here. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, I think it's also important for us to express something of the concern of the timing of this. Because there's a great deal of, of, of writings that talks about the return of Christ and the resurrection and how does that all work out? What's the timing and what's the sequence? Now what I'm trying to do today, just very briefly, is to say Paul has four very distinct passages that deal with Christ's return and the resurrection. Let's look at a couple of these. One of them is Philippians chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21. So Paul's writing to this church, and he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into the conformity of the body of his glory. And the idea that you have here is that there are those in heaven, and they're waiting for Christ's return, and at Christ's return, their body and soul will be reunited. Paul says the same thing a little more directly in Colossians 3, 3 through 4. In these verses, Paul says of the Christian that our life is hidden in Christ with God. Now he goes on and says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. There's one piece of our redemption that is uncompleted. That piece of our redemption is the return of Christ and the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul ties these two together and puts them as occurring at the same time. When Christ returns, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it tells us that when Christ returns, the dead will arise first, and then with them there will be immediate uniting of those who are still alive, and they will meet Christ in the air. This is what's referred to as the rapture. 
those people who are alive on earth at the time of Christ's return being caught up into the air in the resurrection of the dead and these uh, rapturing of these who are alive on earth all coincide with Christ's return. And then in this same passage down in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. In other words, at his coming, those people who are in the grave, their bodies are in the grave, their bodily resurrection will take place at that time. Now, I would just put these out before you and say read them and see that they're saying the same thing. There's a lot of teaching that is very complex, overly complex, that lends itself to a great deal of speculation and all of that speculation for most people becomes quite confusing. When you look at these texts and see their unity, almost unanimity in the way they speak of this, I think it gives us a great deal of comfort. Christ is going to return in power. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth that will be ushered in. And in that new heaven and new earth, we will immediately be receiving glorified bodies and we'll take our place in that great society, sharing in the glory of Christ. Now, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and look at the first 12 verses here, we see that there's a witness and then there is an importance of the resurrection of Christ. In these passages, Paul goes back like any good theologian would do, and he says, what do the scriptures say? And so in verse 3 and in verse 4, he repeats this phrase, according to the scripture. Paul is not putting out any doctrine that breaks harmony with the testimony of the rest of scripture. Christ suffered for our sins according to the scripture, and he was raised from the dead according to the scripture. So Paul bases his teaching as being in conformity with all of the Old Testament teaching. Now, Paul then moves on, and he begins to, as it were, present a case, and he moves to people of importance. So he recognizes the preeminence that has been given by Jesus Christ to the Apostle Peter. And so he says, first, first, Christ appeared to Peter. Now, that presents us a bit of a problem. It shows a great deal of the uh, male-driven and male-centered society of the day. We look at the other scripture accounts in the Gospels and we see that Christ is appearing to the women. And here it's all men that are listed here. 
And when we get into this, we end up realizing how Paul is accommodating himself to the society in which he lived, where the testimony of, wit of women as witnesses was not well received. And so he deals with this strictly from a male perspective. But the focus here is to go against the resurrection is to go against the direct teaching and witness of Peter. And he knows that that carries a great deal of weight, so he puts that first. He places the other apostles in front of himself. He calls them the twelve. Uh, Christ appeared to them. They knew of his resurrection. Then he goes on and he speaks about 500 people at one time. I'm not sure what the intention is here, but many times people think of insider-type things that are done, that you can have a, a small group of people that can begin to put forth something as true and try to, in some unified way, express and advance some particular cause. Paul's trying to say, no, 500 people at one time. Now, if you were in our sanctuary and you filled it to the gills, that would probably be about 500 people. All at one time, Christ is appearing. Notice the tenderness here. He appears to James. Now, this would be James, the author of the book of James, who we understand to be one of the unbelieving brothers of Jesus. This is one of Mary's sons. Did not believe in Christ during his lifetime, and now after the resurrection, Jesus shows himself to his own brother. And then there's referred to then the other apostles. So there are people here beyond the twelve that Paul in the early church recognized as having a stature and a level of authority uh, that should be relied upon as witnesses of the testimony of Christ's resurrection, and he refers to them in that way. Uh, we, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. We tend to think that if a book is in the New Testament scriptures, it ought to exemplify an apostolic origin. Luke, who gives us the book of Luke and Acts, is not classically one of the twelve, but would be in this kind of a context here seen as possibly one of those apostles. Then you see the humility of Paul. Paul mentions himself last. Paul saves himself to the end. He says, I am a witness. I have seen the resurrected Christ. Now the whole goal here is to establish that Jesus was raised bodily. Not just some form, but the, not the, necessarily the exact body in which he lived in uh, prior to his death, but a bodily, physical resurrection that, as we know in other accounts, has special abilities and uh, can do things that Christ was and other people were not able to do. 
price was restored. And that's the point that he wants to make very clear to us. Now, he's arguing here. This is an argument. And the argument is going from something that is specific to something that is general. If Christ is raised, then generally Christians are going to be raised in the same way. That's the kind of discussion that Paul is is bringing forth here before us. And we need to uh, understand that that's his intention. Now, Paul goes on in these verses and speaks about how this transformed him. We have a small group of men that meet on Tuesday morning, 7.30, down here in the office. Some of you other men have been invited, but, you know, you don't want to get up that early. But if you ever decide to come, we'd welcome you right there at the uh, front of the office. And we're looking at the catechism. We are looking at creation. And we're talking about all the aspects of, of how the scripture and the doctrine of creation speaks of creation. We'll say, how do we know that's true? Well, we know it's true because we say that's what the scriptures teach. And we say, we have a pretty hard time proving that God created things in the way he said, the scriptures say he has done them. But it would be just about the same thing that we could come to from a different argument, and that was, as I've said before, John was a bum. So for 22 years, John was a bum. Some of the people in the small group would say, well, I was a bum a little longer than you were a bum. Well, what happened? God. God created something inside me new life, spiritual life. Did I of my own just give up all of these things that I enjoyed, that I thought were cool and fun and brought me whatever I thought that it was bringing me at the time? Did I just all of a sudden say, You know, all that stuff's just dumb and stupid and worthless and awful. And I think I'm just going to come over here and I think I'll just be somebody entirely different. Is that the way it happens? Every one of us agreed we couldn't explain, apart from God's miracle, how this happened. But what has happened is my life has been completely transformed with a power that is alien to me. It came upon me and transformed me. Now Paul is using that argument. He's saying, I myself was a persecutor of the church. That's who I was. Now what happened as a persecutor of the church is Christ Jesus appeared to me. He spoke with me, and he gave me direction for my life, and I have not been disobedient, he would say in another part of Scripture, to that calling. And so he 
knowing the resurrected Christ, the point I'm saying is not just seeing him, knowing the resurrected Christ, in knowing Christ's call upon him, went forth to do Christ's bidding. Now he makes a case even further than that. And he says, because of the person that I was, and because Christ manifested himself to me in this way, I have done more than all of the other apostles. Now, if he's being humble by making himself last, this isn't exactly a statement of humility here. But he knows the things that have come to pass after his meeting the resurrected Christ. He has done more than all the rest. That should remind us of a story. Not terribly dissimilar during Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. While he's at that meal, reclining at the table, a woman of ill repute comes in, and this Jewish woman is being despised by this religious leader, the Pharisee, and he's making a statement in his mind that Jesus must not be any kind of a prophet at all, because if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman it was that was touching him. Well, Jesus basically demonstrates that he's a better prophet than the Pharisee even thought because he knew what the Pharisee was thinking. And so he says to the Pharisee, let me ask you a question. He says, who is going to love more, the one who is forgiven little or the one who is forgiven much? And the Pharisee can't even give a straight answer He says, the one who is forgiven much, I suppose. Paul was forgiven much, and he loves much, and he is doing much. I would want to encourage us. You know the things of which you've been forgiven much. We need to labor much to advance the cause of Christ. The laboring of Christ is a reflection of Paul understanding the resurrection of Christ. We labor little because we do not reflect much on the resurrection of Christ. You reflect much on this. And if you reflect on what God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit has done for you, it should serve as this kind of an internal impulsion, not me being heavy-handed with a sermon illustration, but rather looking at the facts and letting them turn you inside out. Uh, We've got a culture to win. And the reason we can win this culture is because of Christ coming forth out of the grave. Now, the second thing that we want to look to is 
what in verses 12 and following we could say is the fact of the resurrection. There's a factual case from the past that is pointing to a factual future. The comparisons of God's actions towards his son and the actions that will be taken in behalf of us who believe. God raises his son and gives him a glorified body, and this is the basis of Paul's gospel that believers at Christ's return will also receive a glorified body. So in verses 12, he begins to bring up this question that is surfaced because of the uh, Greek philosophy that there are people that are not believing and are teaching that Christ is not raised from the dead. And he moves right down through this to show the reality. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then sins are not forgiven, and everybody who has died has perished. Paul brings this idea up again in a positive way at the end of Romans chapter 4, where he says that Christ died for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. Died for our sins and raised for our justification. Another way of using this justification is for our vindication. We stand absolved because of the resurrection being the capstone of all the work that Christ did. The resurrection is God's capstone over all of Jesus' ministry. The resurrection then is the capstone of all the aspects of our redemption. Paul's insisting that this resurrection is indispensable for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, Paul then talks about the factuality of this and the connectivity of this in this passage and in a couple of others I'd like to mention. But in verse 20 that we read, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. This term first fruits is a bit of a technical term from the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that would be at the beginning of a harvest, as soon as the first part of the harvest came to fruition, that the harvesters would harvest that and offer that as a first fruits offering to God that if God had given the first fruits, that he would give the full harvest as well. And it was given in faith. And that was the, the picture here. That we should receive Christ's resurrection as the first fruits factual of the factuality of the entire harvest. Colossians 1.18, the same idea is brought out where Christ is called the firstborn of the dead. He is the preeminent one. He is the one through whom all the others will be raised. In Romans 8.29, the same idea. He is the firstborn of many brethren. Because he has been raised, all will be raised. 
And then John, Jesus says this himself as it's recorded in John 14, 19. Christ says to them, because I live, you also will live. Funerals come and go, and a lot of times I use John chapter 6, where Jesus repeatedly says, and I myself will raise them up on the last day. This is the testimony of Jesus himself. But the point being, we need to have great confidence in our own and others' bodily resurrection, and it needs to serve as a great motivation of the good news of the gospel. Good news of the gospel sometimes limited to forgiveness of sins. Good news of the gospel is rounded out and completed in resurrection of the body. Eternal life, that's the promise. This is what Paul is seeking to make as concrete for us as he possibly can. Scriptures give us a number of resurrections that were followed by death. Jairus' daughter, widow of Nain, Lazarus. Jesus' resurrection has no death following. It's an eternal life. And that's why we can offer everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We look to your word to teach us, to wake us up. Help us to see the, the great realities, the promises that are ours through your Son. And help us to be mindful that there are people perishing because they don't know Christ. They're our friends, sometimes our family. We pray that you would use us to bring them to Christ. We pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen.